it's Will Gadara, and thank you again for tuning in. This month, we're talking about grit. This is the month of grit. Every month, we're going to be focusing on a different thing that we believe we all need to collectively embrace, focus on, in order to not only survive these next months, but whenever we get to the other side of this, so that we can thrive even more than we were before. Grit is definitely on the survival side. And today's interview was unbelievably inspiring to me. It reminded me of pre-meal. I don't know about all of you, but pre-meal for me is my favorite 30 minutes of the day when running a restaurant. It's the 30 minutes when our team ceases to be a collection of individuals and becomes a team. It's a time when we teach, we talk, we listen, we reflect, we inspire. But here's the thing about pre-meal. Back in the day, I used to find that if I wasn't on, on the days that I was really, really tired, maybe I'd had a rough week or just a rough night, that if I wasn't really on, I should let someone else do pre-meal instead of me because the team deserved the best pre-meal they could get every single day with every single service. Until one day, I was exhausted. I wasn't feeling like the best version of myself and there was no one else to do pre-meal. And so I did it. And honestly, doing it was all I needed to be re-energized, re-centered, refocused to become the most fully realized version of myself. See, in that day, I found that it was through connecting with my team, through feeling a part of that community, that was all the restoration I needed. One of the things I've already come to understand about grit through the conversations we've been having this month is that you need to know where to find the energy that keeps you going in order to have the grit to keep going. If you can't figure out where to find your oxygen, what resources you have to tap into, well, you don't really have a chance. And in this interview, I was reminded that we all got into the business of serving others because we crave community. We're energized by community. It is being around people that fires us up. And so, listen, grit is about energy. It's about having the power to persevere. But you need to know where to get that energy from. And for me being around people I trust, love, respect, being in community with them during a time of social distancing and quarantine and isolation, that might feel counterintuitive. But this conversation proved to me that it's actually pretty straightforward. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. Alan Malali, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Glad to be with you, Will. It's great to see you. So we're focused this month on the idea of grit. With each theme, we're talking about things that we believe our industry, the hospitality industry, needs to focus on to survive what's happening right now and thrive on the other side of this. And grit's one of the biggest ones. And I think you know a thing or two about grit because you've navigated not one, but two companies through extraordinarily challenging times. And so I'd love to first just start by hearing about your experience at Boeing after the 9-11 attacks. Can you just tell me about that first day and how you navigated from there? 
Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. And also, I think your subject is really, really important for all of us. And it really does parallel the things that you are asking me about, about Boeing and at Ford, because many of the things that happened were outside of our control. It wasn't in the plan, and we had to deal with it and deal with it decisively. And what I'd like to share with you is how we did that and how everybody was involved and how we kept our spirits up and took the action that was needed. And then we were able to not only survive it, but come out even more committed to our what we were what we really believed in that was safe and efficient transportation. So to your question about Boeing, Boeing was doing great. We had a complete family of airplanes. We had invested during the toughest of times through the economies slow down. And we actually had become the number one commercial airplane company in the world again. And you know all the wonderful airplanes, the 707, the 727, the 737, 477, 567, <laughs> the 777, which I had the honor to serve yeah. as chief engineer, and then the than the 787, all going point to point, nonstop, taking everybody where they wanted to go around the world. So I was in on 9-11, I was in Japan, and I was working with All Nippon and Japan Airlines. And I was getting ready to go to bed, and it must have been like 10 o'clock at night. And I had the TV on, but it was all in Japanese. At the time, there was not even CNN available. And up comes this picture of the towers. And I got up close to it because it looked like a small airplane that hit a, a building. Then I realized, I saw the picture of the first one and then the second one, and I realized those were 767 airplanes, Boeing 767. And I'm just, whoa. I knew right away that our world was going to change forever dramatically. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Did you understand the gravity of its impact right away? Absolutely. We are about safe and efficient transportation and anything that would get in the way of that or cause all of us to uh, question whether it was safe to fly uh, was going to be a huge impact to the entire industry. And it was. So I remember calling one of the airlines in the United States, I'll just leave their name out, and one of the CEOs and asked him what was happening. And he, they were in their bunker looking at all their airplanes uh, on their screen. And he told me they just decided to put all the airplanes down on the ground because they didn't know how many terrorists were there. And so he kept just watching the idents go dark on the scope. And pretty soon all the airplanes coming into the United States were on the ground somewhere. And so I finally got back to the United States after a couple of days and sat down with our team. And we reviewed in great detail what the real situation was. And this is one of the main points I'd like to share with you. And that is the most important thing about a crisis or an exogenous shock is to deal with it and deal with it really honestly and very thoughtfully because you don't want to think about how it could be, how you'd want it to be, but you got to really deal with the reality or you're not going to be able to take the actions that are really needed, not only for the near term, but also for the long term. So we made our assessment and we, uh, it turned out that it was very accurate that that following year we had delivered, I think, 620 airplanes the year before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And after the terrorist attacks, we delivered 240. And no company that I know of, all the analysts say, has ever survived that kind of reduction in their throughput and survived to continue their journey. And so we looked at the data. We looked at what it meant. We started including everybody, all the airlines, 
all the people knew about travel, the commitments that we had for the new airplanes to be delivered. And we started working on a plan to restructure our business to deal with that reality because we needed to match our production to this tremendously reduced demand that was going to happen for two or three years. Because if not, we'll go out of business because we just can't cover the cost. So we decided to restructure the business. We helped everybody in every possible way deal with that, whether it was furloughs, whether it was time off, whether we had to resort to some layoffs, which we it just made us sick because we, of course, we want to keep our team all intact. And then we also negotiated all of our contracts we had with the airlines so that between the both of us, we could match their production to the real demand also. And so we ended up delaying a lot of deliveries. And back to your point about the grit, maybe the most important thing about that working together was the fact that we were including all the stakeholders and we shared everything with them, everything, what the situation was, what our situation was, what the plan was, what it meant to us. And in hindsight, and because I've been involved with this a number of times, I have found that that is the most respectful thing you can do with all the stakeholders, starting with your employees, is to share with them what the real situation is and what you're going to do and the compassion and the thoughtfulness and the inclusion as you go forward with the plan. So the whole working together principles about coming together around a vision that we're going to still be in the business of making safe and efficient airplanes and then a strategy for achieving it and also a strategy for dealing with this exogenous shock and including everybody, respecting everybody, listening to each other, and also trusting this process of working together with transparency and empathy and humility. And also at the same time, we actually invested in the 787 at that time. So during the worst of times, we also focused all of our limited resources into invest and develop in the company for the longer term. So we came out of that crisis with even a better product portfolio that we could serve our customers with. I'd love to talk about just the idea of communication because, I mean, that's one of the things I love about your leadership strategy is the idea of getting everyone around the table and almost having like radical candor and being honest about successes and failures and all of this. And it's something that leaders, I think, struggle in doing in normal times. And one of the things that I think the entire world is struggling with right now, but especially hospitality, is just profound uncertainty. We don't even know what is going to happen, when we're going to be able to reopen. I don't think everyone's even fully aware of, there's no playbook right now. And so communicating is always hard. It's doubly hard when you don't have conviction in what you're communicating. Exactly. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, my experience is exactly what you said. The most important thing is, from a leadership point of view especially, is to always come from a position of humility and love and service. We have all the competencies. The real thing is how you pull everybody together, how you treat everybody, and so that they know that they're seen. When I say by humility, that means we only know what we know, right? But there's so much more to know. And so just being authentic and sharing that is so important to all of the participants. And then also knowing that you care about them. And that's one of the reasons you're sharing with it. And that's why you're working on a plan to continue the business, even though it's going to be really tough in the near term. And then the last thing about services, and you guys know this, I mean, I've loved supporting you and your welcome conference and your vision of service, which I live for. My parents used to say every morning before school, and I remember to serve is to live. 
Thanks, mom. Mm. That's great. Got it. And so, <laughs> uh, so the, also she used to say, oh, and remember the purpose of life is to love and be loved in that order. Got it, mom. Thanks. That's great. Got it. And it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Got that one too. But the, one that, the, one that, the one that really got me though, Will, was that if you learn to really work together with those principles and practices of humility, love, and service with others, you're going to be able to make a tremendous contribution to the greater good. So I really think it comes back to what you've dedicated your life to and your fellow colleagues in the restaurant business and the hospitality business is it really is about service. And so communicating what the situation is, what the plan is, and the fact that you don't know, but you're going to figure it out and you're going to continue to communicate. I talk to the team every day, Will, after 9-11. My entire team, worldwide, every day, we figured out how to update them on what we knew and what we didn't know. And you don't want to wait until it's all clear because like you said, it's not going to be clear for a while, just like what we're going through right now. Yeah, and I think there's also a good question or a point, which is one of the things we're going to focus on later this year is the idea of being a coach. It's easy to be a good coach when things are going well. It's much harder when things aren't. And I think there's a lot of restaurateurs out there who have been trying their best to keep the team abreast and then the layoffs and then the furloughs, actually the other way around. But there's a point where giving people bad news over and over and over again for those of us who live to make people happy becomes really, really hard. And I think that's one of the things that where grit comes in. There's a lot of people who just are struggling to have the energy to keep pushing. And I'm wondering if you felt that at all through the Boeing season around 9-11 and what did you tap into to find more strength and energy? Well, starting with your first point, I like you, really believe in the real contribution of leaders. And it's not to be the smartest person in the room, because you're not. And the more senior you are running a business or being part of a business, the more that you're really tapping into all of the knowledge of your team. And so I have moved dramatically over the years from being an all-knowing person to being a coach and a facilitator. And that is the future of leadership. And if not, you're just going to get whatever the person that's leading knows. And that's small part of what there is to know, especially when you have. And so to your point about the bad news, there's always good things. In addition to bad. Remember when we used to talk about the challenges are not a problem, but they were a gem. And thank goodness we know that. And we know what the situation is. So one of the things I always tapped into was the team always, because what you want to be really careful about as a leader is to not get isolated and feel like everybody's looking at you and they're waiting for you to give them the clarity about what's going on. It's just deal with the reality together as a team and thank them for their effort, the the people that it's drastic action that have to ask to let somebody go. But you're going to be back. We're going to get through this. You care about them. You're going to do everything you can in the meantime. And so doing that as a team is your source of strength. That's where it going to come from. And the antithesis of that is to get isolated. And then you're not going to be tapping into all the knowledge. They're not going to be feel like they're part of the team of figuring this out because we are going to get through this. We know we're going to get through this. And whatever plan it is we have for today, we know we're going to modify it. And that's why that business plan review, remember how much you like that? Yes. Every, week, every week we meet as a team worldwide. 
And every week we go over the business environment and everybody shares what they think about that. Then also we go through our strategy and our plan, how we've modified it to deal with that reality. And then we're constantly evolving it. So the neatest thing about this working together in the business plan review is we're always looking at the world, the way it's changing and continually modifying our plan, working on the better plan. Now imagine what that means when you do that with your team, even though this is really hard, but everybody's going to know that you are doing everything you can for the greater good of the entire team and your customers for the long term. So I really think that inclusion and working together is your number one contribution that we're going to make. You know, it's interesting. I love how you articulate that because I think a lot of leaders in our business right now, they feel this obligation to have all the answers and invariably they don't. And in the absence of having those answers, they start to retreat from connecting with their team. But by the way, we all do this for a living because we thrive on collaboration and working with other people. And so in retreating, we're actually losing the one thing that enables us to keep on pushing. Well, absolutely. And everybody sees that, right? So all of a sudden now, here you've been connected with them, that you're all aligned on your vision and the strategy and plan for what you're doing in your business. And all of a sudden, that wonderful connection alignment goes away. Well, that's terrifying to everybody. And so I think that continually sharing with the situation is good and bad because whatever action you're going to take, that's the new plan, right? So share the status against that plan. And the fact that you're making progress. I remember when you were starting the restaurant in the Nomad, I think it was, or maybe it was 50. Anyway, the kitchen wasn't ready. And you had to do the cooking in the Nomad, I think it was. Oh, we, yeah, yeah. We were reopening and, 11 Madison Park. And, and everybody's going down the street with you know, your chefs and all your meat team. <laughs> and with a race against time for the opening, which I was very close to being there, which is one of the highlights of my life. And I remember how, even though it wasn't going for the plan, the original plan, you had a new plan. And so the real key then is, is how are we doing against the new plan? And if we're making progress on that, I mean, think of the satisfaction that we all get because we have dealt with reality. We have a new plan and now we're committing against that plan. So I really think that staying connected and having everybody involved and always adapt your plan to how the external environment is changing is the key. Always thinking for the long term, you're going to be back in there and you're going to be serving. And you're going to make a lot of people continue to smile. Yes. Starting with me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for that. I want to talk about Ford in a sec, but I think the other thing, one of the probably the biggest parallels between what restaurants are facing right now and what you faced at Boeing after 9-11 is, okay, we all, every restaurant in America has just taken a huge, huge hit on their revenue, right? 70% or more, which feels unsustainable. And at the same time, the thing that's perhaps even more scary is that people don't feel safe going to restaurants. I mean, it's very, very similar, right? People didn't feel Absolutely. safe getting on planes. Absolutely. Is there anything that you did that could somehow be used as advice for restaurateurs right now in how you approach the idea of restoring a sense of security in an experience that doesn't have it anymore? Well, that's a really important question. And it goes back to we're all in this together. And that means our employees, our investors, our communities in which we operate, the U.S. government, the world government. And the parallels are very, very similar, as you said, because 
there's only so much that we, Boeing at the time, could say about safety. I mean, we could ensure that the airplanes were safe. We, we actually, we knew that this was going to change our lives as airplane designers. Well, we never, never thought that a commercial airplane that delivers people around the world safely and efficiently would ever be used as a weapon, ever. Yeah. We didn't design for that. And so the first thing we did to answer your question is we started changing everything about the airplane, the cockpit doors, the access, the security, the systems themselves that can be contaminated with. And so we could do that part. And we could also stress the safety record of the commercial airplanes, which we always do when we're asked. But it was a time where we needed to make sure everybody knew how really safe these airplanes were. Also, then we went to work with the government and all the airport authorities because they needed to take a big part because this was a terrorist attack that Boeing can't solve that going forward. And you can remember at the time that everybody jumped in, not only in the United States, but around the world, because this is going to affect everybody. And they started to actually work together. And you can also see the parallels of where we are right now. Each one of us can't solve this problem, but we also are part of the solution. So, I mean, I still don't understand why this is so hard. We all ought to be wearing masks. We all ought to be social distancing, or I'd say space distancing. And we ought to be coming together around a plan to have testing that we can do every day, that we have tracing to follow it up, that we work really hard on the vaccines. But that ought to be a coordinated plan where we're all part of it and we're all supporting it to deal with this pandemic. And so I think going forward here, we're all going to have some choices about how that's going and what we need all need to do, including all of the leadership in the United States and around the world, because this is another one where we can't do it by ourselves. We need everybody, starting with the leadership of the countries around the world. I love that. You know, one of the things, and I can almost picture you with your team modifying the designs of the planes to adapt to the new knowledge. And at least how I picture it, you're excited about that process, right? It's a new challenge and requires new doses of creativity. And it's one of the things I've been saying a lot. And I love when I find restaurateurs who are doing it naturally is people get so excited about the creativity of what they're putting on a plate or how they're serving that plate or the graphic design or the interior design. Sure. And are finding no joy in how to take whatever masks, social distancing, all the stuff that we need to do to make the restaurant safe. They're not finding joy in that creative process. And it's just another challenge that if embraced in the right way, could be a lot of fun. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I really think the thinking long-term, starting long-term, thinking long-term, you're going to get through this and we're going to be in it. So what do we need to do to continue to innovate just like we do on our product itself? And I think the other thing that's key about that is it really is fun. We're all designers. And, And if we're all into service, holy cow. I mean, we want to serve them. And so there's got to be a way. And so I find that, I mean, did I want to change all those airplanes? Do I want to be dealing with this? Absolutely not. But in a way, because you're looking at it in reality, and that is the reality, and we can contribute by using our creativity and our innovation to continue to find ways to serve in a safe way. I think that's why we're here, because we're here to serve. See, my mom was right, Will. See, my mom was right. (laughs) By the way, by the way, you and I have in common the idea of our parents saying a lot of stuff that was annoying to us as children and ended up inspiring us as adults. So I'm with you on that. So listen, you, I think, 
are one of the most inspiring leaders I know. And especially during this time, probably the most relevant person to learn from because, all right, you're running Boeing, 9-11 happens, you bunker down, you get through it, everything's kind of going back. And in stronger, a great, which yeah. came back stronger with a better product line because of what you said. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I heard a friend, I've said this on this show before, but a friend is a pastor and one of the people in his church had a prayer that I pray that the things we're being forced to do today are things we choose to do tomorrow. And that's on a personal level. Like I think we're all learning new things about ourselves and connecting with family and loved ones in a more deep way. But on a business level, the things we're doing during austere times, if we can hold on to those things, we'll be much better companies in the future. You know, I really, we've talked about this too, Will, and you and your colleagues have been very thoughtful about this, is that's the neat thing about growth, whether it's you, us personally, whether it's our business, because if you're not profitably growing, then you're dying. And so if you really want to serve, you have two levers, right? One is making products and services that people want and value. And two, continually improve our efficiency every year. And to have that long-term perspective that you're going to profitably grow by serving, well, then that unleashes all of the creativity of all of your employees and all the stakeholders that work with you. And if you don't think that you're there to grow the business and the service that you're providing, then it's never going to be okay because you're literally going out of business and you're going to have to shed people. And so I really think that thought, of, this is an exogenous shock, but long-term we want to grow what we're doing and provide that service actually unleashes all the creativity, both on the efficiency side and the quality of our products. Yes. Okay. So Boeing emerges stronger and then you're convinced oh. to go run Ford. Oh yes. And then everything Falls apart again. <laughs> and so this is my question. Was there a point at the beginning of Ford? Because, okay, at Boeing, it's your first really, really huge global dynamic challenge that you overcame. When it started at Ford, are you like, okay, this is too much. I'm done. I don't need this. Was there ever? I want to hear about your ushering Ford through that. I obviously know the story, but I love hearing it every time. But this is the question I'd love to know. Was there ever a moment where you were like, screw it, I'm done. This is too much. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no, but there was some very, <laughs> there was some very, because it's working together always works because you're going to develop the plan. You're going to handle the exogenous shocks. It's not going to be a smooth path to grow. And you're always going to be working on the better plan. And so the most important thing is you do the very best you can on the plan you laid out. You adapt to the changing world. So even if that meant that you couldn't be relevant anymore, that's the plan. And so you take the action to move the resources on something else. And so it always works because you're always working together to create a viable enterprise or a viable service. To your point, in hindsight, I well, I'm always asked, as you know, why did you go there? I'm sitting in Seattle and I'm the CEO of Boeing. And I'm facilitating, I'm coaching, I'm developing the better plan over and over again, just made it through the crisis. And I get this call from Bill and I'm thinking, Bill Ford, the great grandson of Henry Ford. Oh my gosh, if you're an engineer and you're an innovator and you love products and stuff, I mean, he's one of our heroes and what he did yes. to change the world to provide open the highways to all mankind. So 
I was really interested in it because I grew up in a smaller town in Kansas and we had a beautiful Ford dealership there, that beautiful blue oval. When we started driving, my sisters and I, you know, we'd bang the cars up every once in a while. We'd take it back to the dealership and most of the time they'd fix them. They wouldn't even tell our parents. So, I mean, we thought this was, <laughs> we, I, had a real, I had a real soft spot in my heart for Ford. And so I kept asking Bill all these Not questions. every dealership works like that. You know that, right? <laughs> well, that's why you want to go with Ford. <laughs> okay, so Bill is so neat and he's such a great person and he's a titular head of the Ford family. And so he shared everything with me. And the more he shared with me, well, the worse it got. They had lost their way as a brand. They bought Aston Martin, Jaguar, Land Rover, Volvo, Mazda, and had stopped investing in the technology. So they're a fast follower. They were regionalized around the world. So they had no scale to compete with the global company. Their cost structure was not competitive to make cars and trucks and make a reasonable return. And they were completely separate around the world. So there's no one Ford. There's no working together to tap into all of this synergy. So the first forecast, I asked him about the forecast for profits for the year. And he said, well, our forecast is we're going to lose $17 billion. $17 billion. $17 billion. And so in the rest of the year, <laughs> after I accepted to go there, we achieved that. We achieved the $17 billion. So, so this wasn't a forecast accuracy issue. This was a, we need a better vision, strategy, and plan for this great company. Back to your question. I've asked all the time, so why did you go? And the reason that I decided to go is I felt I was being asked to serve a second American global icon that delivers safe and efficient transportation for the greater good for everybody. And also between Boeing and Ford, that is the arsenal of democracy. That's why we're free going through World War II. And yeah. so I really, it's so important to the economy, to energy independence and security environmental sustainability that I really felt like I needed to serve. And all I had was my little working together model and I knew it worked. And so if I stayed focused, I followed that model of working together, of including everybody, of coming together around the vision, strategy, and plan and dealing with the reality of the situation, I knew, I just knew that we could not only save for, because they were just a few months away from bankruptcy at the time, but also create an exciting, viable, and profitably growing company, which, as you know, we did and became the number one brand in the United States, not only saved for it, but the number one brand. Now, the other part of your question is, was everything a gem? Was everything exciting? Well, we had some really serious challenges. And the biggest one was a breakthrough the culture where everybody would come together and then share what their situation was, including, remember the colors, the red, yellows, and greens on how it's going? Yeah. Well, the culture at the time was that you never brought an issue to your supervisor or your manager unless you had a solution. So now the whole place is managing a secret. And you're never going to be able to get anything around or create a viable company if everything's a secret. So we finally made a breakthrough on that. And then we really started to make progress where everybody now is working together to turn the gems, the reds, the yellows, to greens. The only time that I really was concerned about making it was if you remember the hearings in Washington, D.C., where GM and Chrysler were completely bankrupt. They couldn't get $1 in debtor possession financing. And we were well along. We had borrowed $23.5 billion to restructure the business, to invest in the new products. And we were well on our way until the recession started to hit. And GM and Chrysler 
needed to go to the government. The only place they could go to even survive was to go ask for precious government money, our money. And so we decided to go testify with them, but on their behalf, because most of the administration, both presidents, President Bush and President Obama, and especially Secretary of Treasury and the Secretary of the Federal Reserve, all believed that if they would have gone into free fall during the recession, they were taking all the tech companies and a large portion, 20, 25% of the GDP into bankruptcy. And we could yes. have had a recession in the United States worse than, than uh, the depression. And so even though it was a hard thing to do to, to testify on behalf of your bankrupt competitors, I felt it was the right thing to do for our country and the world economy too. And so if you remember, they gave GM and Chrysler a little bit of money, President Bush did, to tide them over until President Obama took office so that he could let him to make a decision about what they do with him long term. And do you remember there was a period where President Obama told us all after he was elected that he was going to look at this situation because it was really the United States was going into this tremendous recession and economies, economic slowdown. And so there were about three months there where we didn't know we Ford or anybody else didn't know what they were going to do about GM and Chrysler. And if they would have gone into free fall, I mean, it clearly might have taken Ford in also. And yet we've done everything right, taking care of ourselves. And I'll never forget when President Obama called his, the press conference in March and said they had decided to deal with this decisively and actually facilitate GM and Chrysler going through bankruptcy. And so at that point, I knew we we're going to be able to continue to work our plan, not ask for precious taxpayer money. And we were not only saved for it, but it created a Bible for it. But that's the only time where it was so completely out of my hand, Will, that I might not have been able to enable our working together to work. But the fact that we used our working together all the way along is the reason that we were able to make it through that also. Yes, man. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. But it's like, it's back to your point about grit and inclusion and everybody pulling together about what you really believe you want to do for service. So there are some people out there, I have really good friends, maybe in February they had four restaurants and it's clear now that two of their restaurants are not going to reopen. And so their company will get through it, but they've taken really big hits, like restaurants that they invested years to build and Mm -hmm. grow are dead. And just for people like that, what do you have to say for people going through a season like that in their lives to give them hope and some sort of optimism about what can lay ahead? Well, the special thing about that is that your friends, I know a lot of your friends are all as neat as you are, and they mm-hmm. are great leaders. They create great businesses, and that no one can ever take that away from them, ever. They need to continue to appreciate that. In addition, if they get to the place where they can't find the better plan to keep the restaurants open or a plan to transition from where they are to getting the restaurant back in the future, then I would imagine that they have given it their very best shot. Their very best shot. They've included everybody, all the stakeholders, the bankers, employees, everybody that could help. And this is the best thing at this time to do. And so I think they need to appreciate that. And then the last one is, nothing's changed about you guys. You're fabulous leaders, and you had fabulous restaurants, and you're continually innovating. And so 
what's next? Because you're still the same great leaders you were before. And as you pointed out, you sure don't, don't want to lose everything you're learning by going through this, which ought to make you even stronger for if it's still what you want to do and to serve, that we're going to figure out a way to recreate this business in whatever form you're going to do it. So those are three things that I have always thought of. You, you deal with reality, you give it your best shot, you include everybody to deal with it, and you keep working the better plan. That might be a completely different plan, but what's neat is it's making use of your dynamite leadership going forward. And no one can take that away from you or your friends. I think that's an important thing that we're reminded of. When things are going really, really badly due to things very outside of our control, you can forget that you're really good at what you do. And in fact, the season of adversity is making you better. Absolutely. Well, I know we don't have much more time with you. I want to ask you about the extraordinary power of leader humility. <laughs> wow. Well, tell everybody what you're talking about. Well, there's a new book that's just been released. Marilyn Gist and, and yeah. you. And me. <laughs> <Basically. laughs> and me. And by the way, I'm so excited about this because I originally started pursuing you after reading the book American Icon. And so I'm just so excited to dig into this during a time when I think content like this is exactly what we need. Can you talk just a little bit about the book? Oh, yes. Well, thanks for asking. Marilyn was the former director of the Center for Leadership Formation and Development at Seattle University, a great Jesuit school, great values. And she also managed the MBA programs that have moved up to be in the top 10 in the United States. And she's always been a student of effective leadership, of course, with her job. And what she has found, and she's a researcher and has thousands of papers, and the humility of the leader and the leadership team will have more to do with the success of an enterprise than anything else. Because you think about the opposite of that, of arrogance. And so approaching it with humility and an appreciation for others and seeking to understand before you seek to be understood and pulling people together as a coach and a facilitator. So that is the fundamentals of successful working together and leading a business. And so she has all of her data in there. She interviewed 12 CEOs including me. She had me write the forward and she had me write a whole chapter seven about my journey and why what we're talking about right here works and how it positively affects everybody that's pulled in to the light because it's so warm in the light to work together and feel that the true satisfaction of meaningful accomplishment individually and as a team. And she has a neat model about that. that answers three questions, Will, which will blow you away. One is, whenever we're around a leader or get a new leader, there are three things we'd like to know from that leader. Three questions. One is, who are you? And think of the conversation we had about our parents and you and me and humility, love, service, courage, inclusion, discipline. Where are you on those attributes? Because they want to know who you are because you're the leader. And the second question is, is where are we going? Well, the first person you want to ask is the leader. Not like they're the smartest person in the world but they have tremendous visibility and it's their unique contribution to know where we are and where we're going collectively. Not that they figure it all out by themselves, but they include your way. So next one is where are we going? And the last one is, do you see me? Do you see me? Am I part of this? Am I appreciated? Am I respected? She answers those three questions and then she lays out the behaviors that a leader 
that can answer those questions in a positive way, how they would demonstrate with their behaviors about who they are, where are we going, and I really do see you. And it's immediate take-home value, so to speak. You can just check each one of those yourself. And then also you might ask some friends. You might ask some people, maybe your lovely wife. Your fabulous. But <laughs> I tried it out of my wife. I tried it out of my wife, too. So, uh, but the thing is, answering those questions probably have more to do with your further development of you as a, not you, or anybody as a leader than anything else. And so it's released next Tuesday, I think. The pre-sales are fantastic. And as backed up with research, she has 12 different CEOs, many of which you know that she's interviewed. And I just can't wait. And as you pointed out, is it needed more than ever around our world today? More yeah. than ever. Those are kind of the leaders that we want and need. And that's the kind of leaders we want to be. Well, congratulations. And I'm so excited to read it because you have always had this gift of making really complicated things feel simple. And what I'm hearing from you today is, hey, grit. Grit is about just having the confidence to lead and reminding yourself that you're good at it and staying focused on becoming better at it. Oh, because yeah. it is. It's so easy to be overwhelmed, right? Those situations I was in, I, the thing that keeps you from doing that is you have a plan not to be. And your plan is to do it with your team and continually evolve and adapt to the real situation. That's the best you can do. And you're going to sleep at night and you're going to enjoy it. Because you know what your real unique contribution is as a person and as a leader. Great I talking appreciate to you, you so much. Thank you so, so much. And I look forward to seeing you in person on the other side of this. Absolutely. We're going to get through it. And leadership is needed more than ever. I'm glad to support you again, Will. Awesome. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I always love talking to Alan. As I said, he has this amazing ability to make hard things feel simple. And one of the things I'm loving about grit and these conversations that we're having around it is that everyone has their different ways of tapping into something that gives them the energy to keep going. And his answer is perhaps the most profound. We all got into this business because we love working with other people. And when he was facing the most difficult times in his career, he just leaned right into that. As leaders, we're not expected to have all the answers, especially during a time like this. And if we place that expectation upon ourselves, well, then we're going to end up running and hiding because it's hard to step in front of your team if you think you're supposed to have all the answers and you don't. Right now, the only way to come up with the answers is to work together with your team. And in doing so, it'll also energize you to keep on pushing. It'll give you the grit to keep on moving forward. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Raytier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference who's been working so hard this year. 
obviously Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage, but then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do, 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 do. Weekly special. Weekly special. Do, 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 do. The weekly special.